Hey, everybody, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Preacher Boys podcast. I make this show for you, and I hope that you really enjoy it. I have a lot of people that ask me how they can support the show financially, and you can do that by heading over to patreon.com slash preacherboys. You're going to get access to exclusive content, including early releases of episodes. I've got a couple episodes right now that have been released at least a month early over on Patreon. You've got access to things like unique merch, depending on what tier you join, and you get access to some behind-the-scenes content that I'm posting within the group. So head over to patreon.com slash preacherboys and become a member over there today. Every single supporter helps make this show a little bit more possible, especially as I continue to add additional episodes and content every single week. Thank you so much for tuning in. Let's get back to the show. Trigger warning. This podcast contains descriptions of various abusive situations. Listener discretion is advised. You are listening to the Preacher Boys Podcast, a podcast shedding light on decades of mental, physical, and sexual abuse within the independent fundamental Baptist movement. The testimonies shared on this podcast are told from the personal experience and perspective of the survivors. Not all legal outcomes are known or final. Any suspect is presumed innocent until proven guilty in the court of law. Now, here is your host, Eric Skwarzynski. In 2013, Bob Jones University hired GRACE, which stands for Godly Response to Abuse in Christian Environments. And what GRACE does is they come in and they evaluate different organizations to look for any mishandling of sexual abuse. This made a lot of ways because the biggest question on everybody's mind was, why on earth would Bob Jones University, which already had rumors swirling all over the college, allow themselves to be investigated by a organization that's not going to let any stone be unturned. What happened later on was a little bit expected. Bob Jones University ended up in 2014 canceling the Grace Report. They fired the Grace investigators and they decided not to let any of the information that was found come forward. This did not sit well with different survivors, including the guest on today's show, Aaron Birchwell. Erin made the difficult decision to come forward after the Grace Report was canceled and share her name publicly and let people know what Bob Jones was actually doing. Yesterday, the university fired Grace, saying it was concerned about the direction this investigation was taking. When the decision to terminate the investigation was first announced, social media exploded. One person wrote, shame on you, BJU, on the university's Facebook page. Another person wrote, how dare you? A lot of us just felt like this was too good to be true. The strongest reactions were from people like Erin Birchwell, who says she was sexually abused as a student. Really about appearances, and they couldn't have something this big come out. It's, it's just too bad for their appearance. Birchwell claimed she was assaulted repeatedly by a dorm counselor in the late 1990s. She says when her parents reported it to the university, they were told not to say anything. The school told my parents, do not go to the police. This, this will not look good for you if you go to the police. It's why more than 20 years later, Birchwell gladly participated in the Grace investigation. She says to tell the world what really happened after many years of silence. We were hoping that this report would kind of 
validate what we had been saying all along. After enough pressure, Bob Jones reopened the investigation and Grace found some shocking reports from Bob Jones University. Their survey was accessed a total of 933 times and Grace received an approximate total of 342 completed surveys. One of the survey questions asked, would you consider communicating with Grace regarding the issues addressed in the survey? Of the 342 completed surveys, 127 indicated they did not wish to communicate with Grace further, and 215 said they wished to communicate with Grace again. When all was said and done, Grace had conducted and completed a total of 116 interviews. Of those, approximately 50 interviewees self-identified as victims of sexual abuse, and the remaining 66 individuals included interviews with current and former BJU employees, former students, pastors, counselors, family members, or other individuals having relevant knowledge of an issue arising out of the scope of this investigation. The findings of the Grace Report were pretty damning for Bob Jones University. It showed that they did have a long history of mishandling sexual abuse, and Grace made several recommendations for Bob Jones University to make changes within their organization to make it a safer place. Most of these went completely unheard, and those policies and the programs that have enabled a lot of abuse through the years have not really changed at Bob Jones University. You can read the full Grace Report in the link of the show notes, but for now, let's talk to someone who actually experienced it firsthand, Aaron Birchwell. Aaron, thank you so much for joining me on today's show. Thank you for having me. You're kind of on a new Bob Jones tour right now, <laughs> doing a couple different podcasts. And you were just on the Surviving Bob Jones University podcast recently. And uh, Andrew kind of got you back in front of me and kind of got the conversation kicked off again. So I appreciate him doing that. Um, you have a lot of experience with the Bob Jones world. Um, take me back to the very beginning. Uh, tell me a little bit about family life. Uh, your parents were on staff there. Like, What was your kind of early childhood memories growing up around that world? Well, there is a lot to digest <laughs> in general over this place. Many, many layers to it. Um, so if you start at the very beginning, almost everyone that I know that was a faculty staff kid, they were actually born on campus because as a faculty staff member, you were paid extremely low wages. However, your kids got free tuition, college, you had meals provided, your health insurance was provided, and your retirement was supposed to be provided. Um, and those were all great perks on face value. When you are there for a little while, you realize the healthcare is only through there at the time serving the entire student body, which was over 5,000 students and then a lot, hundreds of faculty staff plus their children. They had three doctors, kind of two and a half at one point, that saw everybody. You had to go to their doctors. You had to use their on-campus hospital called Barge. So if you want to start at the very beginning, for most faculty staff kids, they were born on campus in Barge. Now, my mom uh, got an exemption because she had a heart disorder or some sort of complication with her heart. And so I was born off campus. But they, as soon as your mom is ready to go back to work, you go into the child development center there. And that's where you stay until you graduate from college. Mm. Yeah, it blew so, my mind hearing that most kids that are staff kids are born on the campus. Like I'd yes. never heard that before hearing um, one of your interviews, and I was like, "That's really interesting." And I didn't even know that was uh, that was the thing at all. Right, and and a lot of my friends, more than half, I would say, uh, lived also lived on campus. They had campus housing, 
on back campus and the side uh, near the print print shop, the old print shop. And you lived on campus and many people didn't have groceries in their refrigerator because all three meals were provided. Everything you needed was right on campus. The campus was fully, almost fully self-sufficient. They even had a place for staff to buy gasoline, um, obviously meals. They had a dry cleaners. They had a post office box. They had all their, everything was on campus. So a lot of kids never even ventured much off campus um, growing up. So my parents were fortunate. They invested in a house early on. They also worked a lot of side jobs on the sly because you weren't allowed to work other jobs. Uh, That was also part of the commitment to the organization. So they got a house. So we lived off campus, which was nice. And we had meals at home, some meals at home. So that was nice. Um, But I mean, essentially, as a kid, as a faculty staff kid, everything was dictated to you through your parents, but everybody followed the same dress code from seventh grade up. So I wore pantyhose in South Carolina, even in the summers from seventh grade on, long skirts. It didn't matter if you needed to go out to CVS in the middle of the night. You had to put on a skirt and a pantyhose, um, dress standards, no movies. VHSs had to be PG or G, couldn't be PG-13 or above. Every What you listened to on the radio, there was only one approved radio station plus the classical station, um, which plays jazz on Sunday nights, so it was only during the week. <laughs> everything, everything was dictated to you um, yeah. through the school. So our, a lot of parents didn't have their own rules. The, the school decided a lot of that stuff for them. And you know, you mentioned on another interview I was listening to, your parents were a little bit more lenient than some other parents you were around. Um, what does that mean as far as you know? Was it just more open dialogue, conversation, like? Was there things that you were allowed to do that other kids weren't within that environment? Like what was kind of the relationship there with them? So as campus parents, my parents were the some of the liberal faculty who my dad had a choir on campus. And even when it was frowned upon to, you know, socialize with students, he would have his choir over to their house off campus, my house off campus, my mom would cook. They had a white elephant gift party. My dad was fun. He kind of pushed the envelope at school. Mm-hmm. But the other side of that was we attended a church where my dad was also the music minister, which was way out there strict, like yeah. Duggar family looking strict, like right. lots of quiverful movements, long hair, all that stuff. Um and so we we were allowed to do some things, but then the church kind of got more and more entwined in our lives as we got older. And so then while we might be able to do some things as we got older, there were fewer and fewer things we could do because of the church. So I kind of had a double whammy. Um, some of my faculty staff kids, they didn't even really attend a church because Bob Jones had a Sunday morning service for mm-hmm. the we all called it Sunday morning mass because people were in robes and there was an organ. It was very formal. Yeah. Uh, but everybody, including faculty, would go to the Sunday morning mass, all the students, and then you'd go to lunch, and then that was church. So a lot of people never even uh, went to another church, Some a lot of faculty staff. My dad, we, we did because my dad was at this other really strict church. It is confounding that of all the things Bob Jones have, that they don't have just a straight up church on the campus because Pensacola, I know, has like the campus church and, you know, there's some other colleges that are so focused and centered around like a church that they're a part of or out of 
Um, so it's mm-hmm. kind of interesting. Like that's not a thing there. I'm not giving ideas to Bob Jones if they're listening, right. but, uh, but it's, it's really weird that that's like the one thing they didn't have. And it was one of the things, um, you know, when I was growing up, that was one of the things that people didn't like in my church about Bob Jones is they were like, it's not out of a local church. So that like, that was like, they were the more liberal college, you know, they're like, you can go to like these good fundamentalist colleges. Bob Jones is a little bit more liberal, you know, uh, there's a couple different, you know, it was, it was, it was interesting how that, that world is, but, right. um, you know, you're obviously in a very sheltered environment. You've said on some other shows and other interviews that, you know, you were not a big questioner, um, which is, you know, there's really either two types of people. There's people that ask questions about everything and the people that kind of just accept this is where we're at. This is what we do. You know, this is kind of how we move forward. Um, as you got older and, you know, and we're growing up in this environment, did you have other people around you that were starting to question? Did you, were you a defender of kind of the BJU kind of world? Um, like what was your your attitude kind of growing up? So I'm not sure the context. Um, I wish I said that, but I I knew from elementary school age that I did not want to be. That was not what I was going to be later in life. Hmm. I didn't want. We we lived off campus, and so our neighbors uh, they listened to the Backstreet Boys, and I I knew that like someday I was not going to be. I wasn't staying there, but I was terrified of being in trouble at, at church or school. At church, it's they would hang church discipline over you, or they would yeah. publicly shame adults who had done something wrong and morally. Um, so I was terrified of the church disciplining me, and then I was terrified of my parents getting mad at me because they were embarrassed, you know, or, or the school getting mad at me, which would in turn get me in trouble with the church. So it was all connected. So I was a rule follower on the outside. I, I followed the rules, and I didn't get in trouble, but. I, I never fell for it hook, line, and sinker. I, I think right. some of my family did. Um, my mother never fell for it hook, line, and sinker, and that's probably why I didn't. Um, she 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 would she would gripe about it from time to time. I don't think it's a big secret. Um, and um, it was it was more of my dad wanted to be there, so I I didn't I followed the rules very closely just so that I didn't get publicly shamed. Right. Um, but as I got older and I watched some of my friends, I'm thinking of a particular one in youth group, just really uh, become demonized for no reason. Um, I I began to see like, wait a minute, she didn't do anything. That's not right. And and I think maybe I'd let myself become a little bit fooled in that. Well, if you do follow these rules, you don't have to follow them forever, but they're here for your protection. They're here mm-hmm. for your eternal security. And the older I got and the more... I saw, well, this person followed the rules and yet they're still on the outs. Then I, I became, I, I questioned and pushed the envelope more and more. Gotcha. So what the internal questioning was there, it was the, I'm not going to risk the swift hand right. of punishment that's going to come if I do question publicly. Right. And a lot of people still say online and it, cause it's an easy thing to type. I think, um, well, you had yeah. a choice where you went. And mm-hmm. the thing is that some of us didn't have a choice. I guess you have a choice in anything. You, you, I guess that that's true at face value. But when, as a faculty kid, if you had chosen to go anywhere else, including homeschooling, you couldn't even do that. Um, your parents would have lost their job. So the farther in the system you get, the more you think, 
I just need to stick this out because number one, my parents have been here 30 plus years. They'll lose their job if I go elsewhere. Number two, I'm going to be shunned by literally everyone I know. They keep you so busy. They keep you so entrenched in what they're doing that you don't really know Mm. people on the outside. All my college was paid for. I would have literally been living on the streets. I had nobody I could have lived with. And that was the case for most of us faculty staff kids. So you really didn't have a choice. Um, and, and I know that's not, that's true for people also in other youth groups and churches that are very entrenched in the Bob Jones uh, hype that you don't have any outside support. And so, and, and you'll literally be shoved out if you try to pick somewhere else. So I really, really don't, a lot of us didn't have a choice. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned that because that is something that came up just recently in an interview. I think it was in the interview I released last week with Jessica Willis-Fisher, but she talks about you know, people always saying you have a choice, but she said, um, oh no, she was saying about um, a belief system. And she said, you know, well, you believe that. Why'd you fall for that? You shouldn't have put your trust in these people and done this. And, and she was saying essentially the same thing, which was, you can say that, but everything around me told me this was the only way. So like, now you can't change the story and say, I had this other option, this other way to believe. Um, and you know, my friend, Sarah from the a little bit culty podcast talks about this, you know, the idea of, you know, yes, you can make a choice, but if everything in the environment is pushing you to that choice, is it really your choice? You know? And, and I think this is important to bring up over and over again, because, you know, I think of myself, I grew up, my parents were on staff at a church. I spent seven days a week on campus. You know, I, everybody I knew was in that circle. Like it was, uh, it was very similar in a lot of ways. And, you know, at the time that I started questioning, which some of that was sparked by the grace report in a big way, but in the time that I was, you know, really questioning it was, it's like, who else do I know? What leaders do I know outside of this world? What other adults do I know that aren't, you know, are out of this world. And in that circle, it's so small where you're like the idea of going to police versus going to your pastor doesn't even occur to you. Like that is the the final boss in that in that kind of world. It's like, what does pastor say? And then it all filters down from there. So I, I'm really glad you mentioned that because I think that's important to hit on over and over again is that, yeah, you have a choice, but you really don't. And I think the way Bob Jones is structured, like you said, from the time you're born onward, if you're born into that world, you're the world's designed for you to stay. It's not meant for you to leave. And um, I think that's I think that's really good you brought that up. Now all of yeah, this there's a great irony too in that that they want you their their mantra one of their mantras is preparing you to take the word to the world hmm. but they really don't want you to leave there's a no. lot of pressure for to stay for grad school which then puts you in a faculty position which then you have a family and and the you know a lot of the faculty that are there now are just people I grew up with who have never left right. maybe for a year for grad school so it is designed to keep you there for sure you know, so you're you're on the campus. You've got all of these reasons to say, and all the things you listed, all the benefits of staying there. That kind of sounds like heaven on earth in a lot of ways. <laughs> there's convenience. That's the appeal, right? There's the convenience. There's the hospital. There's food. There's you know living there, and that environment can sound like heaven. But if things start going wrong, and you find yourself in a position where I don't have anywhere to go, I feel trapped. Heaven becomes hell very quickly, and um. I know in your story, 
very early on, you know, you experienced grooming and abuse at the hands of a grad student from Bob Jones University. Um, and it put you in an impossible position because you're sitting there in your teenage years going, I want to bring this up, but also, you know, because of the teachings about men and women and because of this strict environment I'm in, am I going to be punished for what someone else did? Um, take me back to that time frame and kind of give me a little bit of detail about how that started and what your internal kind of monologue was through that process. There's a little bit of background, a couple of things uh, that are important. It's, I'll try to give you the short version. It was over several years and there are yeah. all these factors, but um, so the church, I, my parents uh, were on staff at, and I went to, it was, it believed in courtship. Not everybody did courtship. And that's where essentially you go in group dates and then your parents pick someone that they think is a good fit and that you should marry. So that's the one little background bit. The other background bit is that my parents, um, they led a mission team. Um, Dr. Bob III actually asked them to start it. They went into Russia the first year it was or the first year they went, uh, Russia was still the Soviet Union. It was 1991. Mm, wow. And we, I mean, I got to travel on that from the time I was in seventh grade through college. Um, so I have a lot of really great experiences with it. It was a lot of work. It was a lot of rules, wearing skirts all across Europe. But it was interesting. But the the downside was my sister and I were around college kids nonstop all summer, you know, dividing up into groups of just two to stay at people's homes, like not a lot of supervision. And we were very young. And when you combine that with the culture of courtship, where you're you're always just looking for a spouse, it for me, it became really toxic. So my my parents, um, they essentially picked a guy. They I liked the guy, but I was 15 and he was in, he, I think he was a junior in college. Um, they approved of him. And so then that's who I went to all the on-campus dates with, and he came to the house a lot. And so we were dating, and that's who my parents wanted me to marry. So that was my sophomore year of high school. By my senior year of high school slash freshman year of college, I was starting to realize I didn't want to marry him. He was the nicest guy in the world. I have no, I had no complaints. He's still a friend, loosely. Um, but I just knew I didn't want to marry him. And that was not an option. It was made clear to me that was not an option. Well, one of the guys who traveled uh, on my parents' mission team a couple times, he was also a grad student preacher boy, kind of the big man on campus for a while. He was in the preaching contest. Yes, that's a real thing. <laughs> uh, he he preached in chapel and was uh, he sang also. And so he was kind of the big man on campus. He was a friend of mine and he he groomed me. It was, it was little things here and there, little, you know, benign touching and um, lots of written letters to me and spiritual counseling. And so my freshman year of college, I got to the point where I'd had tough conversations with my parents. I don't want to marry this guy. And they would say, but we're telling you, we know best and you have to obey your parents and you'll be church disciplined if not. Um, so I was confused in my own little freshman Bob Jones world uh, where nothing else was really important. And 
So this guy said, well, let's, let's go talk about it. And I had been with him many places in his car. We were friends. There was, I didn't, you know, no alarm bells went off or anything. Mm -hmm. So he drove me to um, a park, a kind of a secluded park and we parked and I was going to tell him kind of what had, was going on with my parents. And I started to cry. Um, and the next thing I know, he, he was grabbing me. He was uh, fondling me. He grabbed my head. He, he made me kiss him. I pushed away and I said, take me home. And we drove home in silence. He took me home. And that started a whole chain of events for about a year and a half where he would write really eloquent apologies to me and say he was the worst human on earth. And he he had a way, um, he was a preacher and he had a very good way with words. And he would say, I'll never do that again. Please forgive me. I, you know, essentially I love you. Um, he skirted around that, but uh, many, many letters of this. And then I would go back because I did like him and I did want to date him. He wasn't the guy I was assigned to, yet he was a preacher boy. I thought my parents might eventually come around for him. And then the farther the cycle, uh, the farther in this cycle I got, uh, and, and you know, the farther we got along, the more I thought, well, now I'm damaged goods and I've got to stick this one out. Um, and so I put up with more than I should have put up with. And long story short, it all came to a head because he was dating his now wife on the backside of also doing all this with me. And I showed up into the dining common one day and she had an engagement ring on and she stuck it in front of my face. And I felt like the biggest idiot in the world. Um, and after that, his, his dad was a, um, real dynamite character mm -hmm. in, uh, town and with Bob Jones, he had some money. He had some influence, uh, politically speaking a little bit. Oh. And he, he was just a bulldog and he was familiar with litigation and he, um, sent us threatening letters. He sent us registered mail and said that if I ever ran my mouth or talked about what happened, that he would sue us for slander. He threatened our church. He threatened the Dean of students. He threatened us. Um, in hindsight, I know now that slander's the hardest case to win and yeah. there was nothing to it. But again, growing up in that world where not only you don't know what's legally okay, you don't want your reputation spoiled. And right. essentially that's what other people, as the school found out about it, all the way up to Beneth Jones, who was Dr. Bothertherd's wife, as school officials found out about it, they told my parents, it's best to not do anything. We've decided nothing should be done. They They wrote it in these kind letters, but when someone above you tells you something as a kind suggestion, it's a hard, fast rule. You don't yeah. question that. And you certainly don't do the opposite. So everything is masked in these pieces of correspondence where you you know what they really mean. And, and that to me, I knew you knew happy, shiny people was going to come in, <laughs> into this conversation in some format. Yeah. That I think was one of my big takeaways from happy, shiny people was that First of all, it's really triggering for anyone who went to Bob Jones. Secondly, when I watched it, I thought I when they used the term eye traps, I knew exactly what they meant. That was taught to us early on, but we didn't have a term for everything. Whereas I feel like Gothard was kind of dumb enough to put terms on things. Here's a glossary of yes, things. Yeah. And and Bob Jones was really sneaky in that mm. they would circumvent and they didn't, they wouldn't record 
notes with uh they wouldn't record meetings where they're talking about immodest dress they they didn't have there's no there's not a lot of evidence like a hard fast evidence um to point to because it was all it's very sneaky it's it's yeah. it's it's more dangerous i mean and again looking between my strict church who was more like the duggars than perhaps bob jones I almost have more respect for the church because those women dress and do exactly what they're told. Whereas in Bob Jones, it looks like women have a say, but they really don't, or maybe some of them do, but not all. So it's just sneaky. So basically my parents were told not to fully believe me and to just, you know, be quiet about it. Um, Well, eventually the church found out of course. And so um, they wanted to have a meeting and this guy's parents said, we will only do it if it's in the middle of the night because we don't want anyone to see us. They wanted him to be a big preacher in in, yeah. in Greenville. Um, and so we met at the church at midnight on February 13th, 1999. I know that date because I have the contract that they made a sign. They drafted a contract that night and it, it said we met February 13-14 um, because, again, we yeah. met at midnight. And everybody gathered and they set everything up like a courtroom. And the point of the evening was to settle the matter once and for all and sign a document that we wouldn't talk about it again. So the pastor was like where a judge would sit. There were two elders on either side of him. There were two tables across from him, my parents and me and his parents and him, and then his fiance and her parents who were also involved in the church. And we had this huge... uh, Hour, several hour long thing. They divided us into rooms at one time, passed a paper around because we couldn't agree on what to say. Uh, she said it was under the clothes. He said it was over the clothes. Didn't matter. They didn't want it. Anyway, so we all signed this this thing and, and we're told not to talk about it again um, under penalty of church discipline, um, essentially. So we all signed this paper and then I didn't talk about it. I mean, there were a few friends I talked to but um, I, I really didn't talk about it for, I did the math here, f- about 14 years yeah. until the Grace Report came out 10 years right. ago. Um, and that was a hard shift, too, to, to say, don't talk about this. Find a way to, you know, wall it off in your mind and move on mm-hmm. um, and minimize it. And, you know, and then, oh, now let's talk about it in front of strangers. Um, so that the Grace Report was really great, but it was difficult for for people um because um again we were not just silenced by that one piece of paper there were um threatening letters mailed to us about not talking um letters that talked about Heyman making his own gallows one of the letters that was mailed they whoever uh took a picture of my a photograph of my head cut it out and had me hanging on gallows the school eventually destroyed that piece of mail um because they didn't they didn't want it out so, um, yeah, so it, I mean, in a nutshell, that's what, that was one of my experiences at Bob Jones that really, um, really jaded me to the whole system where I said, I'm getting through, I've got a year and a half, I'm getting my degree and then I'm out of here. And I took the first job out of state and I've never looked back. I'm going to get you back into today's episode in just a moment. But first, I want to thank the sponsor that is making today's episode possible. And that sponsor is Factor. Factor creates no prep, no mess meals. You can meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never frozen meals are dietitian approved 
and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, no matter how many podcasts you're recording, going up and down the stairs, trying to take meetings, whatever you're doing, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. And I can say this from experience. They were kind enough to send me a couple of meals for this week, and I enjoyed one just shortly before reading this ad, and it is amazing. And with 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. You can make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert and stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. And these aren't meals that skimp on quality either. You've got things like filet mignon, shrimp, blackened salmon, and so much more. So if you want to try it, go head over to factormeals.com slash preacherboys50 and use code preacherboys50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code preacherboys50 at factormeals.com slash preacherboys50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Go check out Factor and now check out the rest of this episode. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Thank you for breaking that down. And I know that that's like 1% of the full story. And, and I appreciate kind of the overview and breakdown of that. And I think you mentioned a couple of things that are really important. And one of the big takeaways from what you just said, and you've mentioned throughout the episode is like this feeling of pressure, an environment of pressure. And, um, you know, it is interesting when you see a guy like a Gothard who says the quiet parts out loud, you know, and he, Mm -hmm. he creates a, essentially a glossary and textbook on how to do these things. And then you've got a Bob Jones university that, I think it extends these olive branches of, look, we have this liberal arts program and we've got this and we're allowing you freedom in this area. And, but beneath the surface, there's like these very nefarious messages that get pushed, you know, and these, these feelings that are pushed out. And that's a lot easier to deny. And it's a lot easier to ignore that as being their problem because they're not explicitly saying, you know, certain things. But at the end of the day, you know, you've got a Gothard where you're dying by explosion because it's so obvious. And then you've got a Bob Jones where you're dying by gas leak, where it's like, you know, there's this vibe here that something's going to happen. And look, you grew up there. I have to know, you know, when the Grace Report happened in 2013 and you're faced with the decision, do I come forward and say something? I have to imagine at that point, you knew this was not going to go well you know, at Bob Jones, I, I don't imagine you were under the, the idea that like, that they were really flowery and kind with their wording. If I come out and say this, they're going to embrace me and it's going to be okay. Like, was that your feeling or was it a, oh my God, I'm about to undo any goodwill that I have with this organization and all of my friends and all of my family and everybody that exists within this network, essentially. So kind of yes and kind of no. Right before, like two years before the Grace Report 
started, everything came to a head up here in Columbus with the Bob Jones affiliated church that we went to. So out of college, interesting, interestingly enough, when there used to be a book, I'm sure there's like a, a drive now or, a, or or something online. But when we graduated from college back in early like 2000, 2001, my husband and I, there was a book that had by state every approved church in the nation. And when you were looking at taking a job, a good student was supposed to, a good graduate was supposed to look at the city where they were going sure. and make sure that there was a BJ approved church there because it was more important to have that than the job. So, I mean, I, I know people to this day who, who still live in cities where a Bob Jones church is solely because that's where the church is. They've been offered better jobs, but it's more important to them to live near and be in a church for accountability um, that's Bob Jones approved. So in the city of Columbus, Ohio, there were only four approved churches in the mm -hmm. Columbus area, which makes me actually laugh out loud now. But um, you know, at the time, one of them was the school my husband grew up at and one of uh, the church that my husband grew up at. And one of them was the church associated with the school that he grew up with. So we were safe and moving back to where he lived. Um, but to make that story also short, we we went to this one church, Bob Jones related. I wanted out of fundamentalism as soon as I graduated. Mm. I was out the door. My husband had a much different um, experience growing up. He was a man. He was in leadership. He had he actually really had a great time in high school and college. He didn't like all of the stuff he saw. But he had a pretty good time, and he just wasn't quite ready to walk away from that yet. So I, I was ready on day one. But the other thing that kept me was my parents still had a job there. And I knew if I I knew that something bad would probably happen if I went full-blown and talked about them online. So those two things were kind of holding me back. And then two years before the grace report came out, things came to a head with the pastor here, the local Bob Jones pastor here. He um, was not the pastor when we were at the church. However, he came up and took the church 500 miles away from Greenville and happened to be literal best friends with the guy who did all that to me in college. So he moved up mm. and became our new pastor. Um, I remember the day they... My husband remembers it too, and some other people at the church. The day they announced his candidacy, I went to the basement of the church, and I think that was my first panic attack that I've ever had because I knew it was such a big deal when it happened. I knew, you know, what are the odds of me moving to Ohio? And yeah. then here it is again. I had started over. I had, I had a good reputation at this church and school. I started a drama program. At, I, I loved my students, you know, and here we go again. And sure enough, it it became a huge problem. And this guy said, I'm going to bring him up, my friend up from Greenville. He's going to do a family seminar. And he told my husband, we're all going to go out to eat together so that she can show that she's forgiven him. Well, they also said that he never did anything and never would have done anything. So my husband, in a real heated meeting, the last one he ever had with this guy, he said, which one is it? Did, did he not do something or is she supposed to forgive him? Because you can't have it both ways. Hmm. And no, we're not going out to eat. So from that, uh, 
you know, he called me a liar and uh, took me off faculty anyway. So we were really kind of jettisoned out of fundamentalism because there was nowhere else to go. He even emailed other pastors and said, don't have the Birchwells in your church. They're no good. So we didn't have, it, it was the best. It was the worst thing for those few years that ever happened to me, but it was the best thing long-term that has ever, I mean, it was ripping a bandaid off with an old wound that needed to scab out and, and it did, but, um, we had to start over in our thirties with friends and church and every, everything we, to this day, we've been gone more than 10 years from that, that church. Um, people still see me in the grocery and turn around and walk out the other way. So, um, so if that, I don't know if I would have interviewed with the Grace Report. I think I would have um, anonymously if we hadn't already been jettisoned out of fundamentalism. Mm, yeah. So we were already out. And um, I I had told the story on the download of people. So I was ready to talk to them, but I wasn't ready. So I thought I was ready to talk to them, but then I had to drudge up the proof and the other things. Right, and so right. then I realized, well, maybe I'm not as ready as I thought, but it was a really great thing. I did. So when, so it was all supposed to be anonymous and that was the hook for a lot of us. We, people really weren't speaking out yet online. Chat rooms were kind of still kind of picking up. So a lot of us did the grace report because it was anonymous. Well, then when they fired grace and it was all just going to go away after dragging on and dragging on. And after all that trauma and my family, I put my family through it. I put myself through it and now there's going to be nothing. So when the news came calling us, I thought, you know, I need, I need to do it. I need to go on the news. And my, I remember my mom begged me to blur my face out or (laughs) change my voice. And I said, I told her, I said, I think it's important that people see a faculty kid who grew up there, who has a very good life. I had no reason to go fill this grace report out for a big story. Um, it's not helping me in any way. Um, and you know, I think the narrative that had been created around that time was that it's just a bunch of disgruntled online anonymous grads. Nothing really happened bad, nothing really. And so I thought it was important for them to see my face because they would recognize me. So I did the WYFF and then from there it took off. And I I figured there would be fallout, but I also kind of banked on the fact that Stephen Jones had hired Grace. And so I thought, well, how much fallout can there be for my parents if they're the ones that asked me to come to Greenville? They got me a hotel. They put me up. Mm. Um, and I, so I, I kind of naively thought, I, I thought it was a possibility, but I, 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 didn't, I didn't think my dad would be fired. And that's what happened. So mm. when they fired Grace in January, that February, my dad was let go. He had been there 42 or 43 years. He needed a couple more years for his retirement and they wouldn't give him a reason. Um, They just let him go. They were smart enough to not fire my mom right away. They let her teach a couple more years, but I'm, I, I'm sure that, that there was a connection, um, a connection there. So, um, so I, I, I kind of knew there might be fault, but I, I certainly didn't think it would be that quick and that severe. Yeah, no, I remember when the grace report was announced and that they were that they were doing it um i was a senior in high school when that happened and i was already questioning everything in the ifb um and i had you know 
I was already investigating like every name, every speaker that came in. I was Googling every, like I had lots of info of like all of these little connected dots within that world. And I used to hang out, you know, on like the fundamental forums, which, you know, and which is not really a thing now, but (laughs) fundamental forums, stuff fundies, like, I think is where I saw that they first announced it, like all the OGs of this world. And I remember when they announced it and I remember it was January of 2014, um, right after I got out of high school, I remember seeing that they had terminated it. And the question swirling around was, why in the world would Bob Jones allow Grace to come in in the first place when they had so many things under the surface that people had been whispering about? Um, I think they ended up getting 120 or 130 different reports that had come in through their investigation. Um, but then 600 surveys. Like 600 people qualified for the survey. Yeah, it was that's wild. And and I'll mention at the top of the show. So if you're listening, you've already heard me mention this. But at Mm -hmm. the um, their their requirements for who qualified for the survey were pretty strict. Like you had to meet certain criteria to be included. So you know that number is shocking. Um, And then you're reading through the report and you're seeing everything is being handled the exact same way. And this is a survey that uh, I mentioned when I was talking with Andrew Pledger on the Surviving Bob Jones University podcast, like for an organization and for a denomination that calls themselves independent fundamental Baptist, all of these churches all over the country handled these cases the exact same way. You know, like there was no independent thought in how to discuss these, but speaking to the grace report specifically, you know, making the decision to come forward, then seeing it get stopped, you know, suddenly, and this is over and okay, I've gone through this, my story's not going to get out there, to then applying the pressure and saying, we're going to share our stories anyway, and we're going to come forward. Then Bob Jones comes out and rehires Grace and makes an apology. Stephen Pettit, who was then the president of Bob Jones University, says, we apologize to the victims. We're taking this seriously. We're, you know, gives all of this kind of language out. When that apology is made, what are you feeling? Do you feel this is sincere? Are you hopeful? Do you feel like, yeah, right, this is just a safe face now? Like, what was the emotion in seeing that? Because there's so many mixed stories about Stephen Pettit and the response. And like, that's when Bob Jones changed was like the big narrative for a long time. Like, what was your thoughts when that first happened? Well, which apology are we talking about? <laughs> he gave two apologies. One caught a lot of us off guard. It seemed sincere. It mm-hmm. was a, a real, I'm sorry, and we will do something. Um, and then later he got up in chapel. I believe it was after the report was out for everyone and said, he he amended the apology and said, if you feel as though we underserved you, then we're sorry, which mm. is the biggest non-apology I've ever heard. If yeah. you feel we've underserved, I mean, that's a yeah. lot of clauses right. in there. So I, I was genuinely surprised when it, he sounded genuine. Um, I was not surprised at all when he came out with a qualifying statement. Mm. A lot of people try to defend him and say, well, legally, they can't admit guilt. I mean, that's just not true. Well, the- but um, yeah. And it goes this is my 
issue with so many of these churches is that when it comes to doing, they talk so much about taking a stand for what's right, no matter the costs, doing what's right, saying what's right. And there's so many situations where like, there's the legal thing to do and the legally smart thing to do. And there's like the, to borrow their land, the righteous thing to do, the moral thing to do. And like, at the end of the day, beyond being an institution or a corporation or a business or a, you know, education, whatever you want to call them, they claim to be a Christian organization that holds to moral values. And so even if that meant we'd have to pay an extreme amount of money, which, you know, whatever, whatever the penalty would be for them, or they were open to lawsuits or they open to a purely moral organization would open themselves up to whatever will come in order to do the right thing. And so I don't buy that answer. And I know you don't either. I'm saying this more to those listening who might be asking that question in their mind, like, well, they're, they're an organization. They have to worry about this first. They need to worry about their board. And they're the, yes, I understand those obligations, but not in the face of what's right. And I think it's a slap in the face to survivors who put themselves at extreme risk of all of the above to share their stories. And so, yeah, I, I never buy that answer. And and I think it's a, it's an easy thing to say, hey, we need to talk to our lawyers first, which I advise. Yeah, talk to your lawyers. But at the end of the day, do what's right, not what's right. legally most effective for you. Right. right. Well, if they wanted to be most correct legally, then they would have made at least one or two changes on what was suggested to change, but they didn't do that. And to take that whole theory that you just said even a step further, those of us who've come forward and are speaking out the truth, no matter how hard it is, um, we're the villains. And and it's Mm -hmm. it's just so backward on so many levels. I don't want to just talk about um, Steve Pettit for the entire conversation, but he's such a fascinating piece of Bob Jones' lore at this point, because he, I think for many BJU alumni, he was heralded as like the voice of change and he's the voice of reason. And he was more, you know, he was more from the MacArthur world. So like, it was like, he's going to be a little different, which is so funny because it's so similar, but he's going to be a little different. He's more understanding. And a lot of people marked him coming. And even at the time of the Grace Report, the grace team being rehired, it was like, look at him. He's making changes. And then you have him there for a while. And then eventually he resigns or is pressure or whatever happened just in this last couple of months, like and over largely over him wanting to enforce title nine policies and lots of other different strange things like looking now what's your kind of perspective on him as a figure within that world? And do you just think it's too messy to even know what the truth is at this point? You could have asked me before he took or after I would have had the same, (laughs) the same answer. I feel like I, 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 I'm a little bit puzzled as to why people have turned him into a hero. Um, I, so the, the first thing is everyone's, pretending as though he was some big bastion of change. Um, he changed the skirt length. He's mm-hmm. changed the volleyball shorts. He changed the music. But the same dean of students, dean of men, all the yeah. procedures, none of that changed. 
the fear of coming forward after you were being raped by a Furman team, um, that didn't change. That happened in 2019. Hmm. He said things like, we're here for the victims and reached out. He never reached out to me. And I was the, I think I'm one of the only faculty kids that's come forward with my name. He was actually on the same uh, newscast that I was. There were three people on that. The spokesperson for the school who grew up with my husband, Steve Pettit and me. And he said, both of them said, we don't know any of the victims. And I had made it very clear that Mm -hmm. I was a victim. So I, I've seen deception along the way. I've, it's been 10 years since the grace report. No one's reached out to me. Um, And again, everyone thinks he's a change. A brick wall would have done a better job than Dr. Bob the third. Let's be honest. I mean, Mm -hmm. anybody in the year 2020 would have changed some of what the Jones family did. So I, I don't see him as a hero. I see him as a placeholder that was slightly more modernized outwardly, but I, I don't see him as I know, I, I know how much he took in salary uh, when the faculty were making a fraction Mm. of that. I know that he picked an extremely kind of Learjet to rent to that the university had to rent to fly around in, which cost more money when the school didn't have the money. I know he promised to double enrollment and it didn't even come close. I know that the promise was taken away and under him, millions of dollars of buildings were built. And yet my parents don't have the promise of their retirement. Hmm. So, I mean, to me, it's, it's cut and dry that he's no hero. Um, I think people who are down there, want to find anything they can that's slightly positive and sure. yeah and of yeah. course you're in your survival mode too of course yeah. you want to feel as though that's right. the better option but yeah yeah well and i think that's important too because i think it is and you mentioned this you have a lot of positive memories well it's one of those things and i say this about my childhood too is i grew up for 18 years pretty much always at this place. And so, yeah, I have a lot of good memories, all of my best and worst memories and all of my memories are are there. So like, it's not really a great argument, but it is something that you do see is that people are grasping for something to go, you know, who feel that their entire college experience was invalidated or their entire upbringing was invalidated or their entire belief system has been invalidated in some of these cases. And so I think if you can find and say, well, it wasn't all bad. There was this, there was something that was beneficial. It makes it feel easier to digest in a lot of ways. And I think you can get to a healthy place where you can say, I've got happy memories that are great and I hold on to those and I can hold on to them independent of the larger, you know, the larger picture. Um, Yeah. I, I of course had, I have a lot of great memories um, it's it's crazy how creative you can be within those strict rules yeah. to have, still have fun and play some practical jokes or have a of course, of course, it, it was our life. Of course, we have a lot of good memories. Um, but having the good memories also doesn't mean there weren't any bad and vice versa. I, I like to tell people I used to volunteer in a women's prison and I taught some art classes and stuff. And so when people say, Well, you didn't have any good art you didn't have any good time or, and I, I will tell them prison has taco night. I mean, they're good nights everywhere. <laughs> uh, yeah. It's not a great analogy, but and that's, one's going to be, that's a meme, a gift. That's the title of the episode. 
That's <laughs> prison as taco night. No, just kidding. Prison as taco night. I, you know, they're good times. Yeah. They're things to look forward to. You find good times and you find good people too. I think the saddest story about Bob Jones is that there were some good people, especially on the faculty. There were people who believed in the mission when it was started. And then I, I think, and I, I've watched that Nexium, one of the Nexium documentaries. And I think the best thing I ever heard was nobody joins a cult. Mm-hmm. Nobody joins a cult. Oh. Everybody thinks I'm doing this because it's bettering eternity and it's bettering me and it's bettering people around me. And there were some very good people, well-meaning people on faculty, at least, you know, back in the 80s and 90s. Mm-hmm. And it's sad that they were just fooled and they were discarded like trash. And that's and that's what happened to them when they promised them all this stuff and then said, oh, I'm sorry, we don't have money to fulfill that. I'm curious now, we're 10 years removed from the Grace Report, as you said. Um, and, you know, there's obviously still a lot of discussion happening. There's entire podcasts being made and there's pages dedicated to discussing these topics that have you know, not slowed down in the amount of conversation being had. And, you know, I'm obviously Pettit wasn't the change. The Grace Report itself wasn't the change. Um, 10 years removed, looking at this, having discussions about this, what would you like to see happen at Bob Jones University? If you could see some steps being taken this year, if they finally bend their ear to all, all the noise that's being made and all the conversations being had, what are the steps you'd like to see taken that would make you feel like things are going in a positive direction? Well, uh, 10 years ago, I would have said this, that, and that. And now I would have said this, but somewhere in between, I would say, I would say if they, if they didn't do the right thing 10 years ago and with the grace report and they still 10 years later, haven't done the right thing. I I don't know that there's hope for them. And I don't know that I feel sorry for anyone who's left. Um, However, if I, people will ask me, well, what will make you happy? Nothing will make you happy. I think there's, there, there are two takeaways. I think number one, the faculty who worked all those years, um, and let's face it, that everybody who has a good memory of school, it's from the faculty they had and, and the peers, it's not from the administration at all. So the faculty were not allowed to work other jobs. They they made literally well below poverty level. They were promised a retirement and it got taken away. And no one, Pet included, has done anything to even just open up a GoFundMe for the faculty. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, <laughs> former students raised $60,000 at graduation to give to Pettit and not anyone else who worked there all these decades. So I'd say... Um, before you run out of money completely, I think that you need to go back and find the faculty who are owed this promise and you need to fulfill that. And then I think you need to go back 10 years to the grace report and you need to make some genuine apologies and you need to start actually looking at what they said 10 years ago and you need to start doing that. And I I don't, without those two things, I, I don't know how they can move forward. Um, they have, they have been, they they had they are way down in enrollment this yeah. year. Way you down. You could see in the picture they just posted of the new class. I was like, it's looking yeah. pretty it's, bare bones. Yeah. Well, we know people up here in 
the admissions at Cedarville, and they've had a lot of transcript requests um, wow. since last year. Um, they they they're down below two thousand students, yet they have the same size campus, the same number of faculty. Um, they, it's 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 not looking good. Um, but if they could do those two things, I think a lot of people who've been alienated for a long time, maybe they're not going to up and send their kids there, but they might. They They're might not going to tell go, people right. not to send their kids there. Right. I might actively <laughs> yeah. stop com- talking about them um, because I, but it's, it's just, it's still not just last week. I had two different friends tell me about some horrific things that happened to them on the campus in the years around the year 2012, 15. That's not that long ago. And um, I, yeah, it's not changed. It's not changed. So I think those two things are the, the big sticking points that I would have coming as someone who grew up there and have parents um, who are part of that, those decisions. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's so funny. is not the right word, but it's so funny. Like in all these conversations, so I'm like, what would you like to see changed? And it's like, you know, it's simple changes. It's like, it's not necessarily easy changes, but it's simple change. It's like, don't throw survivors under the bus and, you know, one or two other really simple things that are just easy moral judgment calls. Mm -hmm. But yet here we are again, 10 years later. And, you know, I'm like you in the sense of I'm not super optimistic at this point for BJU and for a lot of similar places. It's like, I feel like this podcast will be evergreen for as long as Bob Jones exists. And that's, I mean, Mm -hmm. I hope that's not true. Like ultimately, I am hopeful that something will shift or the right leader will be brought in or something will happen. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, the how many times can you hit rock bottom before you make the decision to to change? Um, mm-hmm. But regardless, I think people like you speaking out is so important, so valid, um, it, or so validating for people, um, especially considering who your parents were, the environment you grew up in, like, and. I mentioned this with Andrew just recently when I was talking with them. It is people who have every reason to love these environments, whose parents were such a crucial part of it, who were the people that were following the rules and doing the right things. Like it's not usually the disenfranchised, bitter kids that are speaking out. It's the people that love the idea of something that turned out to not be what it said it was. And um, I just think it's really important that you keep telling your story. I think it's validating for people that have been through it. I think it's going to encourage other survivors to come forward. And I think while I don't have hope for it to change some of the larger institutions like Bob Jones, because at a certain point it is a machine, um, I do think there are smaller organizations that can take lessons from these and, and really learn to do the right thing. So Thank you so much for for joining me and for coming on. Is there anything you want to add before we uh, close out the episode? No, I would love to see somebody sometime do a podcast of funny, funny stories from these places because I got a bunch of those too. (laughs) We we did a, I I should, I should at some point do something like that. I, I did a thread one time and I think it was like weird What's the, I think it was the, what was the worst or the dumbest dumbest thing you got demerits for? And, and that blew up with so many weird comments. Um, that would be a fun episode. Yeah. I mean, we have so many, I mean, we did have a lot, you get very, it's kind of like the back to the, I don't know why I'm 
comparing everything to prison today, but it's kind of like the creativity comes out of boredom thing. Yeah. Like the more rules you're given, like you can only use a box, the more creative, the more creative, creative you it. get. And we, <laughs> yeah. we had hilarious, very elaborate practical jokes and like we'd film whole movies, like, and we had some really funny, funny times, you know, because again, that was all we had yeah, <laughs> with each other right, and the funny right. stuff. So yeah. yeah. Well, I just I... see so many survivor podcasts now. I'd love to see uh, obviously, I love that, but like something that's like funny, funny about yeah. it too. There's funny. <laughs> yeah, it would be a fun one to do at some point. I'll have to. I'll have to. I'm do bugging that. Andrew too, so yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it would be. It would be a lot of fun to do that. So I'll have to bring you on when we when we cover that and and go over it. Okay. Um, yeah. There's there's a lot of weird like strange stories. Um, I, I actually talked to I, you. Might know him actually. Hmm. Um, this is. I may have to end the podcast at some point and just drop an outro. So if you're still listening, <laughs> sure. I, I left it in. Do you know, um, oh my God, do you know Nick Matthews? Hmm. How old is he? Because I'm in my 40s. He is probably 30 something, but his parents were on staff at Bob Jones. Oh, Matthews. Okay. Not John Matthews then. No, so, he's like way up. So I interviewed this guy. So this is total, total aside. So I, I have a, I have a film podcast that I do. That's like my happy podcast that I do in addition to this podcast that makes me want to rip my hair out half the time. So, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so I was interviewing Nick Matthews, who is, he's a cinematographer. He just did the new Saw movie, and I was interviewing him, and he, and we're talking, and he's, uh, he's, he's going, yeah, I grew up. Um, I said, just give me background. He said, I grew up in a very like fundamentalist Christian home. And I was like, interesting. That's pretty interesting connection. And he's like in South Carolina. And I was like, ding, ding, ding. Yeah. I'm like, it has to be Bob Jones. (laughs) And so he keeps talking. He's like, we were really strict. He's like, you don't understand, man. We're like, we had the TV guardian that bleeped out bad words. Couldn't watch it. That wasn't Pete. And I was like, oh yeah. And then um, I said, was it? Bob Jones? He's like, yeah, it was Bob Jones. He's like, my parents were on staff there. No my one mom. wants to say it. Nobody said no, it. No, and like, he felt oh, like he, he was trying it. to explain no. it and like a like a this was super weird. And he was like, he's like, my mom was a literature teacher, or my dad was a literature teacher at the school, and my mom was um something in the faculty. And he's like, so we had a I little bit. Do know him. Yeah. So it was just super interesting. It came up, but we were we were laughing because then. I was like asking about his first jobs. He's like, he's like, I didn't, I didn't tell anybody for the first five years I was in LA, but I worked at the creation um, with Ken Ham. And I was like, <laughs> I was like, man, you checked all the boxes. But anyway, I say all that to say um, it was really funny because he was talking about the first time he ever watched, oh, what was the movie? It was some movie. Um, because we were talking about catching up on like already movies we'd never seen, like big movies. And or he said anything the, 80s. Yeah. Yeah. And he said the first time he'd watched, ah, I wish I remember what it was. I'll drop a clip in here. But he, he said the first time I watched some movie, we were snowed in at the Creation Museum. And me and a buddy who were in the film department were like, just watched it secretly. And and I was like, it was it's stuff like that, though. That's so funny. That's like such a unique. Like experience. Jaws or something like I forget yeah. what it was, but that's so funny. Anyway, but yeah, it was really funny because it was like I inter- I didn't know at all. I just booked the interview because I was like wanted to talk to him, and then it was like small world. What an interesting so connection! Funny, but well, um, 
I keep saying we need to do a mystery science theater with the Bob Jones movies because they're so oh, we, terrible. We mentioned Sheffy on the episode. They're <laughs> so terrible. I mean, they're just begging for some little puppets to like mock them. Um, this is true. Um, when we were little, you know, we weren't allowed to watch anything. My parents weren't. There was a man who lived off campus who had all, he had his own little blockbuster, but it was Christian. He would take VHSs and he would watch them and he would black out the nudity or what or the even like bathing suits and he would bleep out the bad words and you could go check out two at a time from him and that was okay and then he wound up getting the story was he wound up getting sued later (laughs) because you can't just edit out a hollywood film but yeah we were we could go my dad more liberal families could go and get a movie and then our church put a stop to it because they said well he had to sit there and watch all the bad stuff. He's probably selling the stuff he spliced out to college students for extra. <laughs> so, um, that's so funny. There, there's a yeah. we're totally on a different uh, conversation here, but um, but there's a documentary called I think it's Clean Flicks or yeah, Clean. Oh, oh, I got to watch seen that. It? Yeah. Oh no, I love documentaries. It, it's it's um it's it's heavy, and I think for for anybody's listening, it's it gets dark and heavy. I mean, you're listening to this podcast, so there it is. And then I think if you are averse to nudity, I think there's nudity in it because they used clips from movies. So just those two warnings, you get your fundamentalist warning, there's nudity, and then you get warning. your um, trigger warning for, but this guy was out of uh, Utah. He was, um, I think he was, I don't think he was Mormon, but I think he was catering. He saw like an opportunity to cater and he did a similar thing. He opened a video store that, um, sold edited movies to Mormon families basically, but he ended up getting caught creating and selling like child sexual abuse material to people. So like the story goes from like weird entrepreneur guy selling to really restrictive Mormon families. And like, they go into history of the Mormons and like, tablecloths were invented by Mormons to cover table legs because they look like the shape of a woman's leg, like very weird stuff. (laughs) But then it gets it all the way into this dark where it's like, oh, this guy was a total creep. But um, that documentary is really interesting and it's kind of the same, the same realm. But yeah, yeah, there's so many weird things like that, that it's funny when you're talking to someone who's not in that world, you realize like more things were weird than you did. Because like, there's some things like that where it's like, Oh yeah, like the removing language from movies. And then like I tell people about the TV Guardian and like oh whenever someone said crap in a movie it said crud on my screen, you know, it's like that stuff's yeah. weird to explain. And then someone's yeah, gosh, like gosh, golly, we couldn't say gosh or golly yeah. or oh my goodness cuz that was just substitute, you know, substitute yeah. words. So, so Yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah, whenever we'd say oh my gosh, my youth pastor would say I'm not your gosh. I was like, just yeah. stupid, stupid stuff. But <laughs> anyway, well, if you're still listening and you haven't just been like, what's going on? Um, thank you for listening to this episode. And I, I do think it's important to talk about again, like I said, and I do think even the funny memories, it's good to like, I don't know. It's always good. I'm, I'm so far out at this point. I'm like 10 years out of mm-hmm. this world, which is crazy to see. Yeah, exactly. 10 or no. Yep. I'm like eight years out of everything, mm-hmm. but close enough. but it's still there's something nice to sit down with somebody that understands that world and and talk about it. So um, thank you for coming on. I hope this isn't the last time we talk. If we do an episode, like we talked about, I'll, uh, I'll make sure I give you a ring and, and we can chat about it. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening to the Preacher Boys podcast. If you appreciated the content on the show, please leave a review on iTunes and don't forget to connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at Preacher Boys Doc. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.